So a couple weeks ago, I woke up on a Friday morning in a hotel in Spokane, Washington. Um, I turned on the television, and I saw the day before 27 tornadoes had touched down in Iowa. And as a part of that storm that whipped over Branson, um, a duck boat in Branson, many of us have, have ridden them, almost all of us have seen them who have been there, um, sank, killing 17 of the 31 people on board. And I want to be honest, I was sick to my stomach. Uh, I was listening to reports out of Iowa of towns that had been destroyed, just gone, demolished. Because now of cell phones, you could watch it happen. I mean, you could watch someone film a tornado, you know, taking the subdivision next door to his out. And then many of us saw the duck boat struggling on the lake. I mean, I was sick to my stomach. And I thought, because I'm a doer, because I'm a pastor, I just thought, like, like we got to do something. We got to do something to help people. And I grabbed my cell phone uh, and I texted our community outreach coordinator, Sherry Hennig, who just put on an unbelievable love week. And I said, Sherry... I just saw what happened in Iowa. I saw what happened in Branson. Is it like, is there anything we can do? Are there any churches that we can help? Are there any areas that need cleanup? Can we put a group to go together for Iowa? I'm watching what's happening in Branson. Like, I am sick. What can we do? Um, and she said, my small group is actually heading to Branson tonight. We were going to try to do something. What, what do you want? And I said, you've got, you got the church behind you. You guys do what you need to do to let them know there's a church in Kansas City that cares, that loves, that is behind them. Because her husband is a police officer, less than 24 hours after that event happened, our church, through a small group already in Branson, um, was able to take dinner to the mobile command center and just talk to the police officers and the first responders down there and say, we're behind you. We're praying for you. Keep going. I can't tell you how many days... Um, people see what's going on in life and they have a heart to do something but no hands to do it. Um, Journey, we are a church that has both heart and hands. Because of the way you give, because of the way you serve, because of the way you love. For us, it's not I wish we could do something. For us, it is do something. Um, And a few weeks ago in Branson, uh, this week in Kansas City, in the future, we will continue um, to love people. Listen, for our church, love is not a weak Love is not a word. Love is an action that flows out of a heart that has been touched by Jesus. And we are a church who will continue to see people in need and help people in need. But it's because of how you serve and how you give. You can absolutely put your hands together for that. So thank you for your 3,000 hours plus of community service. For the 20, almost 26,000 meals, 250 backpacks, backpacks filled with school supplies, 61 pints of blood. Listen, blood's going to have to be your thing. I'll do the backpacks. Um, I am not a, a give blood guy. Scott told me, he's a Christian, I actually found out if you've been on the mission field in the last 12 months, you're, not a, you're actually not allowed to give blood. And I said, then book me a trip every year. Because um, I don't, I don't want to say no, but I, I don't do that well. I will need blood if I try to give blood. Um, so thank you all for what you did to help our church make a difference for Jesus in our community. If you have your Bibles, we're back in Leviticus chapter 25. Grab your Bible, fire up your Journey Church international app, take the notes out of your bulletin so that you can follow along. We're in the book of Leviticus that was named after a man named Levi and his family. They became a group in Israel known as the Levites. They were the ministers in the temple. Really, the Levites were the servants of Israel. It was their job every day to serve the people of Israel. It was their job every day to serve God at the temple and at the tabernacle before that. The Levites were servants. They were born and raised to be servants. And some of the greatest servants in our community are getting ready to go back to work this week. This is back to school week, which means all the parents say amen and all the teachers say oh no. But we want you to know, those of you who work in education, how grateful we are for you. This is our Sunday Every year to recognize people who work with kids in any way in our community 
And just to pray a blessing over you, to pray a blessing over you, to pray, pray protection over you, to pray influence over you. So if you're in here um, and you're a teacher, if you're a coach, uh, if you work with a, a rec department, um, if you're a homeschool parent, if you're a bus driver, if you work in the cafeteria, if you're in administration or work in the office, if you work in education, would you stand up right now so that I could pray over you? Don't make, you call, don't make me call you by name because I know a lot of you personally. So if one starts, the rest will go. Please stand up right now. We want to first, would you help me thank all these men and women. Stay standing for just a minute. Folks, you need, the under, you need to understand the way America is set up, we can't do what we do without public school, private school, um, homeschool parents. So thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. We know it's not easy. We know it's not easy to be a Christian in what you do, some of you. But your influence matters. Your work matters. You matter. And we want you to know we're praying for you. God, I pray for every person standing right now that your hand of blessing, that your hand of protection, that your hand of influence would be on them. Lord, thank you that they are getting ready to go back and serve, Lord, the people of our community through their jobs this year. God, I pray that it will, for many of them, be their very best year ever. God, I pray that you will put one student in their path who forever will have their life changed because they were in this teacher's class. They sat at this table. They rode this bus. They got sent to this office. Lord, pour Jesus into our community through the people who ministered our community most, all of our educators. Bless them and be with them. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Be seated. Thank you so much for what you all do as we go back to school. So we're in a two-part message um, that basically is a sabbatical recap of my last six weeks. For those of you who are pretty brand new, my name's Christian. Seven years ago, we started our church, um, and our elder team and our personnel team decided that when our staff has served for seven years, they're going to take a biblical sabbatical, or at least honor the principle of it. A little bit of an extended time off to just get really spiritually healthy, make sure you re-energize and plug into family so that the, fr- the future um, crop is always better than the crop in in the past. That's the thought that we've been studying from Leviticus chapter 25. We started this journey last week in Leviticus chapter 25. I told you I learned four lessons over the last six weeks. If you weren't here last week, go watch it on video. This message makes more sense having both parts than just one. If you were here last week, we'll jump right back to where we left off in Leviticus 25. So if you have your Bibles, pick them up or open it up or look down at your phone or focus on the screen. Leviticus 25 says this. Before we read it, here's what I'd like you to do. Bow your heads, close your eyes. Take a deep breath and just pray in your heart what Eli taught Samuel to pray. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. When we open the Bible, I'm not reading my words. I'm just repeating God's words to his servant. If you're a Christian, that's you. So every time you open your Bible, you should say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. God, prepare our hearts to hear what you have for us from this book that is thousands of years old in its original printing But Lord is for us today as we study it. In Jesus' name, amen. Leviticus 25 says this. The Lord said to Moses at Mount Sinai, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I am going to give you, the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years sow your fields, and for six years prune your vineyards and gather your crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a year of Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your untended vine. The land is to have a year of rest. 
Whatever the land yields during the Sabbath year will be food for you. For yourself, your male and female servants, and the hired worker and temporary resident who live among you, as well as for your livestock and the wild animals in your land, whatever the land produces may be eaten. Go to verse 18. The people certainly would have asked if we can't sow or reap, but that's how we get all of our food. How are we going to eat? God would answer that question. Verse 18. God says, follow my decrees and be careful to obey my laws, and then you will live safely in the land. Then the land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and live there in safety. You may ask, what will we eat in the seventh year if we don't plant or harvest our crops? Great question. God says, I'll send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. While you plant during the eighth year, you will eat from the old crop, and you will continue to eat from it until the harvest of the ninth year comes in. So I told you I learned four major lessons the last few weeks that I wanted to pass on to you as I tried to walk through spiritual experiences with God, some things that I learned that I think maybe you can only learn in a sabbatical time that I want to give you for maybe when one day you have the opportunity to take it. If not, I certainly want you to learn the lessons of it. The first two I gave you last week, we said the command for a Sabbath year is a test of rest, but a test of rest is a test of trust. To be able to rest, the Israelites had to trust that God was going to take care of them. That was part one last week. If Israel could not learn to rest well, if they couldn't learn to trust well, then they couldn't learn. They wouldn't learn to experience God well. And if they couldn't experience God, they couldn't know God. And if they couldn't know God, they couldn't represent God. And that was their whole role in world history, to know God so well that they would represent him to the world. So God said every seven years, you're going to take a year of rest. On that year, you're going to rest. You're going to learn to trust. By trusting, you're going to learn to know me. By knowing me, you'll be able to tell the world all about me. But Israel struggled to rest because they struggled to trust. And they struggled to trust because of two of the final reasons, two of the final tests I'm going to give you today. The command for Sabbath is a test of rest. It's a test of trust. But it's also, number three, a test of contentment. The more I studied this Sabbath year, I learned that God was trying to test the people of Israel on their level of contentment. I told you last week that God said, you're not going to plant, you're not going to harvest. And the people would have said, well, what are we going to eat? We're going to starve. We're going to die. If we don't plant and we don't sow, we're not going to have anything to eat. God said, don't worry about what you eat. But I grew up in a farming community in southern Ohio. And farmers don't just plant and sow so they have money to eat. They plant and sow or so they have food to eat. They plant and sow so that they have food to eat. But then they sell the rest for all the other things they need in life that aren't food. It is their business. So we see that Israel said, okay, we're not going to starve. But God, how are we going to make money? I mean, God, we're, we're going to need a little money on the side, right? I'm sure some of them had some investments we know a lot of them had loans that were given out that they were making monthly income on. They thought, okay, maybe the seventh year is for our side business, not our farming business. Except the Bible has more to say about sabbatical than just Leviticus 25. If you have your Bible, flip over to, De- flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 15, just a few chapters to your right in your Bible. Because in Deuteronomy 15, we learn a little more about the Sabbath year, the sabbatical year. And God said, it's more than just trusting me with food. I actually need you to trust me with all of your life, specifically what you have, your finances. Deuteronomy 15, verses 1 and 2, God says, at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it's to be done. Every creditor 
shall cancel any loan they've made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. God said, listen, you're not going to sow. You're not going to reap. You're not going to have anything to sell at the market. And all that income you've been receiving on the side, if you've loaned anybody money, I don't want them to make any monthly payments during the seven years. In fact, just forgive the whole loan. Now, for those of us repaying loans, that's a pretty good year. For those of us who have loaned out the money, it's like, hang on, God. But maybe there's a catch. Say, well, God, this person's not actually paying back the loan. They're actually working to pay off the loan. So what about people who are working to pay off the loan? And God says, I'm so glad you asked. In verse 12, he says, if any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you for six years, so they work off the debt instead of pay it, in the seventh year, they have to go free. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord God redeemed you. That's why I give you this command today. And by the way, verse 18, don't consider it a hardship to do this. Like this is not, what I'm asking is not hard, God says. Don't consider it a hardship to set your servant free because their service to you these six years has been worth twice as much as that of a hired hand. And the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. If you have your pen, underline that last sentence. And the Lord your God will bless you in everything that you do. Here's what you need to know about the seventh year, about the only thing you get that year is a blessing. God says, I don't want you to plant. I don't want you to sow. Don't worry, I'll feed you. But not planting and not sowing means you have nothing to sell. Don't worry. And by the way, if you're making monthly income any other way, cancel that. And if somebody owes you money, just cancel that too. And if somebody's working to kind of help you through life, set them free. But before you set them free, open up the vault and let them have as much as they can carry. I know you've put it away for a year. You might not have anything. But let them have as much as they want because here's why we're going to do this. If you do this, you're going to get a, ble- a blessing. And then God adds, I love in, the, in verse 18, by, and by the way, have a good attitude. Like, I know you're all stressed. Have a good attitude because I'm going to bless you, which would lead us to ask this question right in the year 2018. If we have nothing, if we have nothing but the blessing of our God, is that enough for you? If you have nothing for a year but the blessing of God, Is that enough for you? Or we could flip the question. If you have everything but the blessing of God for the course of a year, is that enough for you? Now, most of us, because we're American Christians, say like, is there a letter C? Like, I, like both A and B. Like I would, I would like all of the blessing and all of the stuff too. Like is there, is there a third answer? Because the more people I talk to, I realize there's a lot of people who want a $25,000 life and a $250,000 lifestyle. You say, what do you mean by that? They want a job where they don't have to work evenings, where they don't have to work weekends, where they don't have to work holidays, where they don't have to work summers, where they get to really spend time doing what they want to do, but they also want everything else. They want the boat. They want the lake house. They want the cars. They want the toys. They, they want a life where they're not required to do a whole lot so they can spend time with the people that are most important to them, but they also want everything else. And God says on the seventh year, you're going to have a year of sabbatical so you can learn how to hear, have a year of contentment. See, the Sabbath year would break this spirit of I want blessing and everything else. God says you can have blessing 
or you can have everything else, but on the seventh year, you have to choose. On the seventh year, you have to choose because if you can trust me, you can experience me. And if you can experience me, you can know me. And if you can know me, you can tell the whole world about me. You see, the seventh year was a year for the people of Israel to learn to be settled and satisfied with what God would give them. It was a year for them to think, I don't have to really provide my own way this year, but at the same time, I have to learn, with what, I have to, learn to be content with what God has given me because there's no more coming except what he chooses to give me. We studied this word contentment earlier in the year. We did a series on finances called Broken. We heard the Apostle Paul tell us that godliness with contentment is the best life you can live. We took that word contentment as Paul wrote it in the original Greek language. It's the word autokaios, and it's a word that means satisfied or sufficient. It's someone who believes every day what they have is enough, and they cannot be swayed by anything outside any more or any less to do anything to believe that they don't have everything God wants them to have. Every seventh year, the people of Israel were going to learn to be settled, and they were going to learn to be satisfied with what God had given them, which led me to realize that maybe I was asking the sabbatical question wrong. I realized, what if the Sabbath, what if this concept of rest has nothing to do with exhaustion and everything to do with satisfaction? Like, what if God wasn't telling people, relax, because he was afraid they'd burn out, but he was telling them, rest, because he knew they didn't trust him for what he had given them? What if he knew that this spirit of always needing more would keep them from ever having a spirit of really being able to worship God for what they did have? We said last week this time period was a time period to convince the people of Israel that God controls tomorrow and you can trust him. We are supposed to live with what we see today in front of us and influence and impact what we see in front of us today. But we're supposed to trust God with tomorrow. We're not supposed to lose any more of today worrying about tomorrow. Remember we said that. I'm not going to lose any more of today worrying about tomorrow because I trust who controls tomorrow. But now I want you to do a math question. School starting this week, so just one math question and then no more math. Here, here is, it's kind of a word question, not really a plus or minus question. Here, here's the thought. We said last week that God controls tomorrow. And I think those of us who follow Jesus believe that. God controls tomorrow. Matthew 6 says, don't even worry about it. God controls it. But let's ask this question. If yesterday God controlled tomorrow, who controls today? Let me say it again. I know math is hard. If yesterday, right? Well, if, if on Saturday God is in total control of Sunday, then who is in total control of Sunday on Sunday? Anybody? God is. And God says, you will have everything you need every day for who I'm trying to make you into spiritually. You can be satisfied every day with what you have because what you have on this day is exactly what I want you to have. I'm in control of today. You have exactly what I want you to have to produce in you what I want to produce spiritually. If every yesterday God is in control of tomorrow, it means every day God is in control of today. But we struggle to believe that. Or maybe we struggle to be okay with what God's plan is for us. Remember last week I told you that the people of God were starving the people of Israel after 45 days out of their 
journey from Egypt. They ran out of food. They went to Moses and said, we don't have any food. Moses went to God and said, we don't have any food. And God said, tomorrow you're going to wake up. I'm going to give you bread from heaven. God never called it manna. Manna is a Hebrew word meaning what is it? You can picture the people. They went out. They picked it up and they said to each other, manna, manna, manna. What is it? It got called manna for the next 40 years. It was God's bread from heaven. God said, I'm going to give it to you for six days. On the seventh day, you won't have any, but don't worry. You'll have everything you need. The seventh day, I want you to rest so you can trust, so you can experience, so you can know, so you can go and tell everybody else. But on the seventh day, people went out to gather. I told you last week, I thought there were two reasons. The first reason I think people went out to gather is because they woke up scared to death that they couldn't trust God. And if there's none there today, there might not be any there tomorrow. And, and God, I know what you've said, but I just, just in case, God, I know what you said, but just in case there's never going to be any more, I'm going to go out on the seventh day and I'm going to gather anyway. I, I think part of the reason was fear. I think part of the reason was discontentment. I think God told the people, here's my plan for you. I'm going to give you six days worth of this. And someone said, I'd like seven. And he said, no, you don't understand. You only need six days of this to be who I want you to be. And someone said, no, I would really rather prefer seven. No matter what God gives me, I'd actually like a little bit more of that. So on the seventh, they went out to see if they could have more than God had desired for them to have. So Danielle and I got to spend a few days at Glacier National Park uh, in northwestern Montana this summer. It was, it was the most beautiful place that I've ever been in my life. We saw things at Glacier National Park that I have only read in books describing like places like the Garden of Eden or seen in movies. It was absolutely beautiful. But there are all kinds of signs of wildlife when you get up there. Like, be careful because there's wildlife up here. Like, as you drive into the park, they literally hand you a pamphlet of what you do if you get attacked by a grizzly bear. And I got that packet. My first thought was, I really hope we see a grizzly bear. So I had, like, prepared this entire trip. I really want to see a grizzly bear. I told Danielle when we went on walks in the park, I said, listen, make sure we're always close to someone who looks a little bit out of shape. Because if a bear comes, you don't have to be faster than the bear. You only have to be faster than the person you're standing beside. And after you get clear enough from them, get your camera out and take pictures, but keep it above the carnage so we can show it to our friends. It's like, I really, I really wanted to see a bear. So we drive up this road called the Road to the Sun. It takes two hours to get up into Glacier National. It's beautiful. We take this hike to a place called Hidden Lake, and at the trailhead, there's a sign with this massive kind of cutout picture of bighorn sheep, and on the other side, a massive kind of cutout thing of mountain goats, and it says, you will encounter these animals on this walk. Here's what to do. Don't get too close. Don't feed them. Don't. Here's how to treat them, all that stuff. And I stood at the trailhead, and I said, my day would be perfect if I actually got to see both of these animals. And Daniel's like, well, maybe we will. So we took this couple hour hike up across this big snowfield and we got to the top and sure enough, man, here's this massive kind of herd of these mountain goats that were like, like to hear on you. They look like the abominable snowman. They were like jet white with horns and it was awesome. They like literally would just walk right across in front of you. You weren't supposed to pet them. I wanted to, I didn't. Um, but I was like, that is so cool. We got down the trail. We hadn't seen any bighorn sheep. I was like, well, one out of two isn't bad. And as we were in the parking lot getting ready to get into our car, Daniel said, Christian, look. And like on a mountain a long way across the road, there was one like little bighorn sheep climbing up the hill. And she was like, you saw, you got to see both of it. Like get your camera. So we're like trying to zoom in this camera on this thing that's so far away you wouldn't have been able to recognize it in the picture. And a lady very quietly says, behind us, look behind you, slowly. And we turn around and there's this herd of like 20 <laughs> running right at us. 
Thank God I was on one side of a fence. They were on another. But, I mean, they literally ran to, like, right there and started eating grass in front of us. Like, we could have leaned over and, like, shook their horns. They were so close to us. And it was like, that is awesome. Get pictures. Get video. We did. And we got in the car, and Danielle's like, well, your day's perfect. And I said, yeah, but I really wanted to see a grizzly bear. Like I, and she was like, you're never going to be satisfied. So we drive out of the park, and I'm thinking, maybe on the way out, I'll see a grizzly bear. She falls asleep, takes an hour to drive down the mountain out of the park. And as we're leaving the park, pulling past the Glacier National signs, I I just kind of sighed and I thought, well, guess I'm not going to see a grizzly bear today. And at that moment, God gave me a vision. Say, what do you mean by that? I'm not totally sure. I was driving. I was wide awake. I was watching the road. Danielle was sleeping. But God showed me a picture in my head. Literally at that moment, God showed me a picture in my head. Here was the picture he showed me. God is walking towards me. Say, what did he look like? I don't know. I just knew in in this moment, I knew God was showing me a picture of something spiritually. He's walking towards me and he's got this folded piece of paper that looked this size. He's got like this little smirk on his face. And I know he's coming to give it to me. So I asked God as he approaches me in my head. And I'm I'm sure it lasted a moment, but this is a picture I saw. I asked God, what's on the paper? And he said, it's every prayer request you've prayed for the last 40 years. And I was like, that all fits on one piece of paper? And he was like, it all fits in one word. I said, what? And God said, yeah, Christian, this is every prayer request you've prayed for the last 40 years. Do you want to see it? And I said, yes, I do. And God handed me this sheet of paper, and I opened it up, and on the inside it said one word, more, more. He said, Christian, this is your spirit towards me. The last 40 years in every area of life, more. Hey, remember when you found out your wife was pregnant and you just prayed that the baby would be healthy? That's all you cared about. Yeah, yeah, God. Remember how when it was healthy, then you you prayed that it would like be safe every day of its life after that? Yeah, God. And then you prayed it would do well in school? Yeah, and and it would be smart? Yeah, and and they would be athletic? Yeah, and they would have good friends? Okay, God, like, I, I get it. I get it. Christian, pick an area of your life and tell me where you're not still praying for more. And God said, until you can learn to be content, until you can learn to be satisfied with today, you'll never truly worship me for who I am and all that I've given you. As long as your prayer request is more, you can't really say thank you for what you have. And he's like, God, I hear you. And God used this sabbatical time to become a test of contentment because he told me to stop asking for more so I could truly learn to enjoy what I had been given in the first place. But I realized this test of contentment ultimately becomes, number four, a test of obedience. A Sabbath year for Israel was to be a test of rest. It became a test of trust. They had to trust to rest. It had to be a test of contentment because there's no way they would trust enough to rest unless they woke up every day and thought, whatever God has for me is, I guess, good enough for what God wants me to have today. And ultimately, it became a test of obedience, following God because he said so. I've learned in my spiritual walk, I'd like you to learn in your spiritual walk that God is in the habit of asking us to do things that will make us totally reliant on him. Because he wants us to become more like Jesus. 
God is in the habit of asking us to do things, asking us to go places, asking us to behave in ways that we cannot do on our own because he wants us to learn to become totally reliant on him so we can become more like Jesus. You say, where is that? Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29 say it this way from the apostle Paul. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God says, every little thing I ask of you, every little thing I allow in your life, every little thing I put into your life has one ultimate purpose, to make you more like Jesus. So learn to see what comes into your life as being from me or allowed by me to make you more like Jesus. It all has a purpose, and the purpose sometimes is worth the pain that comes with the situation. One of the things I did this summer is I read a lot. I read a lot of books. I love magazines. I've been reading Sports Illustrated every week for the last probably 30 years. Now it's gone to every other week, so I kind of have to skip a week. And this year's Summer Sports Illustrated edition was Where Are They Now? It's one of my favorite editions because now it's getting to be all the guys that I grew up watching who don't play anymore, and it's kind of their stories. One of the Where Are They Now? stories was the story of the Karate Kid cast. Believe it or not, that movie came out 34 years ago, June 22nd, 1984, for those of us who want to feel a little bit old. If you've seen this movie, it's a story about this kid being raised by a single mom who keeps getting beat up by these guys who are part of this Cobra Kai-like karate studio, and he desperately wants to learn karate, but he doesn't have money to go to like a karate class, so he finds this guy in his community who's Japanese. His name is Mr. Mia, okay, so you've seen the movie as well. Um, and he tells Mr. Miyagi, like, I need to learn karate. Will you teach me karate? And Mr. Miyagi's like, yeah, I'll teach you karate. He's like, all right, when's my first lesson? And he's like, right now, mop the floor. Like, what? You want to learn karate? Yeah, mop the floor. Okay. Comes back the next day. I want to learn karate. Will you teach me karate? Yes, I'll teach you karate. What do you want me to do today? Wax the car. I don't want to wax the car. I want to learn karate. You want to learn karate? Yeah, wax the car. Okay, wax it on. Wax it off. Shows up the next day. I really want to learn karate. Will you teach me karate? Yes, I'll teach you karate. What do you want me to do? Paint the fence. Paint it up, paint it down. Paint it up, paint it down. After a week of doing everything Mr. Miyagi asked him to do, but teaching him karate, he finally comes in one day, and like at the climactic moment of the movie, he, he kind of blows up and says, you've done everything but teach me karate. And Mr. Miyagi starts doing like drop kicks and spin kicks and stuff, and all of a sudden he's wiping the fence and waxing on and waxing off. And like he blocks all of them, and he's like, holy cow, I know karate. Like he didn't know He was learning karate, but he was willing to do anything for the end result of knowing karate so he could protect himself. My son's 17. I coach him in football. Uh, His head coach is sitting over here. The things coaches make kids do sometimes are miserable. They're miserable. I mean, when you watch kids running around and like kids do something, you're like, you know, run to the tree and back and they just do it. You like you think. That has to be miserable. I should probably not have told them to just run to the tree and back. The things that athletes will do for their coaches, if they trust their coach to get them to the end result of a championship or fulfilling their ability, the things that athletes will do for their coaches, if they believe the coach is going to lead them where they want them to go, it's unbelievable what kids will go through. The things that a union apprentice will go through for a union, for a period of two or three years. 
banking on at the end of that two or three years that apprentice becomes a full-fledged union. The things that an apprentice is willing to do to become a part of a union are miserable. But because the end result is worth it, they keep doing it. Have you ever seen the clinicals that medical professionals have to go through or the residencies that doctors have to go through? The things they go through are miserable. 48-hour work shifts without stopping. But they do it. Why? Because of the end result. See, we are trained to think if something hurts, I'll do it as long as the end result is worth it, except in Christianity. And if God asks us to do one thing that even makes us uncomfortable, we think, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean, God? I didn't sign up for that. I mean, everyone else can ask us to do uncomfortable things that leave us laying on the ground, panting for air. But if God says, I'd like you to sacrifice a little here so you'll look like Jesus one day, we say, I'm out. That's not what I signed up for, right? Forgiveness, heaven, all that stuff. But I've not signed up for all that. And God says, until you go through that, you can't become like my son. So a sabbatical, a Sabbath becomes a test of obedience, And where did we get the theology that coaches and teachers and professors can ask us to do hard things to make us better, but God can't? Where did that theology come from? Because the newsflash of Scripture sounds like this. God's will is to make you holy, not happy. I mean, God wants you to be filled with joy. We know that. But God doesn't wake up every day trying to figure out how to make you happy. He wakes up every day trying to figure out how to make you holy. And what is holiness? Holy is defined as being set apart to God to become more like God. It's being set apart from your old life so you can be a part of a new life. It's being set apart so you can become more like Jesus. Because God says only then will we really be fulfilled. God said if you really want to be filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, you have to be filled with me. And if you want to be filled with me, you've got to be holy. And if you're going to be holy, every now and then you're going to go through things that you wouldn't choose. But if you can learn to be obedient, you can learn to be holy. If you can learn to be holy, you can learn to be filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, which will make you fulfilled. You might not always be happy, but when you are holy, you are fulfilled because you are living in the purpose that I created you to live in. The Apostle Peter said it this way, just as he who called you is holy, so you be holy in all you do for it's written, be holy because I am holy. Here's what you need to understand. It's not always easy. It's not always our first choice. Sometimes it's our last choice. Sometimes it's a choice we would never make. God may ask you to do something to fulfill his will in you that you would never do on your own if you didn't have to. You say, how do you know that, Christian? Because he did it to Jesus. In one of the most well-known prayers of the Bible, Jesus is in a garden called Gethsemane. It's on a gentle slope going up the Mount of Olives. I've been there about a dozen different times looking up at the old city to the east gate to where Calvary would be. And Jesus on his knees prayed that night, God, I know what you're asking me to do and I don't want to do it if it's up to me. If Jesus can have something in his life that God asked him to do that he doesn't want to do, you and I certainly are gonna have God ask us to do something in our life that will make us uncomfortable but that will result in our holiness and his plan being fulfilled in us. Jesus said it this way as written by Luke in Luke 22, 42. Jesus said, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. 
I mean, God, if you would, I'd like you to change your mind on this one. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. I'll be obedient. I know this isn't going to make me happy. I know this isn't going to lead to a good day. I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to be beat by the Roman soldiers. I don't want to be buried in a grave for three days. I don't want to do what holiness requires of me, but I'm willing to do it because I know that was the purpose that I was created for. I've learned that holiness comes from obedience to the hard things that our original will would have never chosen for us. You learn to be holy when God tells you to do something you would never have chosen for yourself, but out of obedience you say, okay, that's when we become more like Jesus, something you would have never chosen. For me, a sabbatical. I mean, when you, when you think of it in the terms of that, you know, for the course of seven years, I poured everything in my life into a church. We sold everything we owned to start over here and, and start a church, or to, to move over here and start a church. We raised our own support for three years so that the church wouldn't have to pay us a, a penny of our own money. Like we poured all of our blood, sweat, and tears as a family into this church. And then God says, now go away. Go, just go away for six weeks and trust me with it. So God, I don't want to do that. It, like this means more to me than anything in the world. And God says, I don't care. But God, what if it's not there when we get back? He said, that's not really your problem. God said, all, all I want you to do is learn obedience. Because if you can learn obedience... You'll learn contentment. If you can learn contentment, you'll learn trust. If you can learn to trust, you'll learn to rest. And guess what? All of a sudden, you'll experience me and know me in ways that you never could have done. It's not obedience in the easy things. It's obedience in the hard things that allow us to really experience Jesus. And we need to realize some of those hard things come in this way. The kingdom of God, according to Scripture, as we read through the early stages of Jesus' ministry... The kingdom of God belongs to those who choose obedience before they even know the commands. The kingdom of God belongs to people who will always say yes to Jesus before they know what he's going to ask them to do because they trust the nature and the sacrifice and the love of Jesus that they have heard about. The kingdom of God belongs to those who choose obedience before they even know the commands. And here's a discipleship dilemma that we see in our church that maybe you are facing. You know, our goal is not to have people raise their hands and make a decision. Our goal is for people to raise their life and literally become brand new people as they follow Jesus. So we constantly, as a leadership team, talk about discipleship. What is discipleship? People growing in their faith and becoming more like Jesus. And we talk about what is keeping people from really following Jesus. And there are two areas that we find all the time as we watch and talk with people and just listen to people that we realize are going to be areas that hold them back forever if they can't step over the hurdle. And they both have to do with areas of obedience. The first is this. There are a lot of Christians who struggle giving total authority to God in his word. There are Christians who say, I want Jesus, I want heaven, I want forgiveness, but I don't know that I can give total authority to God and say that everything in his word is how I'm going to live my life. They struggle to give up authority and become servants to God and his word. Maybe you are in the midst of that struggle right now. My belief is no one will ever be able to really follow Jesus in freedom until they have said, God, I trust you more than I trust myself. Just whatever you say about an issue, that, that's what I'll believe. The second area is change. 
Most people want to add Jesus to their life, but they don't want to change anything. And if you ask them to make too drastic of a change, they say, if that's what being a Christian is, I don't want to follow Jesus. They struggle with authority. They struggle with change. But the kingdom of God belongs to those who choose obedience to authority for change before they even know what's asked of them. That's what we see in Luke chapter 3. We see a picture in Luke chapter 3 that I don't see often in our church, but I believe it's important to develop this spirit. What does Luke chapter 3 say? John the Baptist is baptizing. He's introducing this new concept of the kingdom of God to people. And listen to how those who are eager to enter the kingdom, watch their spirit as they come to John and eventually to Jesus. Luke 3, 8, John says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That word in itself means change. And don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Don't just say we're Jews, we go to church, nothing else matters. John says, no, 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 more than that matters. So in verse 10, they said, what should we do then? What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. The tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they said, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, John told them. Some soldiers came to him and said, and what should we do? And John would tell them how to live their life. The spirit of Christianity says, I've come to Jesus. I was this before Jesus. Now that I've met Jesus, what am I supposed to do? How should I live my life? I don't see this spirit a whole lot in today's Christianity. What does Jesus want me to do here? What does Jesus want me to do here? I don't know if you've noticed we live in the most politically charged environment than I remember in my 40 years of life. I hear a lot of people say things and post things. You know what I have not heard in the last four years? I haven't heard one person come up to me and say, Christian, I was a Republican before I got saved, but now I'm a Christian. What should I do? I've not had one person say, I was born and raised a Democrat, but then I became a Christian. What should I do? I haven't heard anyone say, I've never voted in my life because it wasn't important to me, but I want to honor Jesus. What should I do? I don't have a whole lot of people who say, you know, I used to party on the weekends. I smoke a little pot every now and then, but now I'm a Christian. What should I do? I don't have a whole lot of businessmen who say, I spend lots of time away from my family because it allows me to make a whole lot of money, but now I follow Jesus. What should I do? I don't have a lot of single people saying I'm sleeping with someone who's not, who I'm not married to or I'm living with my boyfriend or girlfriend, but now we're Christians. What should we do? I don't hear a lot of people say I have lots of nice things in my closet and in my garage, but no money to give to God. Now that I'm a Christian, what should I do? I don't hear a lot of people saying I spend so much time every week pouring energy into the things that are really, really important to me that I have no time left for God and his church on Sunday. However, now that I'm following Jesus, what should I do? I've not had people say I've had a really bad experience with church in my past, but I want to be really close to Jesus in my present. What should I do? See, it's a spirit. It's not a question. It's a spirit of... I believe Jesus has a life for me that's better than the one I would choose for myself. So what should I do? I've always done things this way. But what should I do now? The chief priest from Jerusalem came down and asked John, what should we do now that we follow Jesus? The tax collectors came down and asked John, or asked John, what should we do now that we follow Jesus? The soldier said, what should we do? There was this spirit of obedience to commands that they didn't even know were there yet. And sometimes it's painful to follow the commands. You say, Christian, let me be honest with you. I know what God wants me to do. I cannot do that. 
the change that it will take for me to do what God is asking me to do as a follower of his will be so painful in my life. Christian, I don't think I can do it. Christian, even if I knew the answer, the way that I think I'm created in my head, I think I would wrestle for that with the rest of my life until I literally died. That may be exactly what God wants you to do. Because sometimes in wrestling with God, you get to know him most intimately. That's what happened for a man named Jacob. His grandpa was named Abraham. And he was a guy who kind of lived for money and family and forgot about God. But when he came back to God, God asked him to do some things that would hurt him. And it says one night they wrestled all night and they wrestled so intensely that it says God touched the socket of Jacob's hip and it hurt him so deeply that for the rest of his life he walked with a limp. But in that pain came a promise. His name was changed from Jacob to Israel. He became the, went from being the father of a family to becoming the father of a nation. And the whole world would be blessed when one day a man named Jesus would come from this family of Israel. But he had to walk with a limp because the change that God required of him hurt. Here's what I want to tell you, Journey. I would rather limp into God's promises than strut in my own confidence. I would rather limp for the rest of my life financially trying to give God what he told me I should give him so I could be holy and know him more. I would rather limp in relationships, trying to forgive people who have hurt me and put away bitterness from bad experiences. I would rather limp through some of the painful moments of life, getting to know God on a deeper, more intimate level than stick out my chest and say, I got it all figured out. I don't need what God has. And then just hope one day when I died, I'd go to heaven. See, a Sabbath is ultimately a test of obedience. Because it's a picture of Jesus. God says, I would like you to rest with me. But you're going to rest in relationship with Jesus. To rest in Jesus, you're going to have to trust Jesus. Let me ask you a question. When you got home today, Jesus was sitting on your couch. Eating your food. Like dressed in his like 2,000 year old white robe. Petting your dog. Remote in hand. Or your cat if you're not a Christian yet. Like if he was sitting in your house. Right? He was sitting in your house. And when you walked in, like you just knew it was him. Like I knew in this vision it was God. You just knew it was him. You're like, what are you doing here? And he said, I want to give you a life, and here's my promise for you. This life is going to result in you being so filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I want to give you a life that is eternal. I want to forgive everything that you have ever done. And I promise I will never leave you. Would you agree to that? After looking in his eyes, after meeting the man, Jesus, would you agree to that? And what if he said, I've got an envelope that's sealed. And it controls all the commands that I have for your life for the rest of your life. If you make this agreement with, you can't read it first. But if you make this agreement with me, you're choosing to trust that whatever is in here is for your good. Whatever is in here will make you stronger. Whatever is in here will make you holy. Whatever is in here will make you more like me, and I promise on this journey, you'll be totally fulfilled if you keep moving forward. Would you take the deal? Because that is Christianity. It's being invited into a rest that takes trust, that takes obedience, that ultimately every day looks around and thinks, I must have exactly what I need today from God to be who God wants to create me to be, so I'm going to stop asking for more. That's who God wants to be in our lives, Journey. 
because he knows if we can trust him, then we can experience him. If we can experience him, we can know him. And if we can know him, we can share him with our community. Do you know him that way? Would you be willing to try to trust, to be obedient to know him that way? Would you be willing to ask the question, hey, here's who I am. Is this who Jesus wants me to be? Or would he have something better for me? Would you pray with me as we consider that question this